late 20th century, justifying military actions against Muslims in the former Yugoslavia that would eventually have him on trial for war crimes, the Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic fired up Christian anger against the memory of an Ottoman conqueror over six centuries earlier. But the third of the great Ottoman founders, the one who left such an indelible mark on Christian Europe and whose name was used to justify warfare centuries later, was actually never intended to become Sultan. So untrained was he that he couldn't even read or write his name. Still, Sultan Murad I is remembered of one, as one of the greatest of the Ottoman sultans, glorified by some and reviled by others, but significant to all. And that is the subject of our episode today on the Golden Age of Islam. So please stay tuned. continuing to talk about the founding of the Ottoman Empire. And this is really important to get the basics down here because this would go on to be one of the great empires of history and is certainly remembered as one of the great Islamic empires, uh, one that was demonized and supposedly terrorized Europe uh, for centuries. But of course, they start out, the Ottomans do, as a small tribe, one of many Turkish tribes uh, fleeing from the Mongols. So this process of how they become such a big, very settled empire uh, is really fascinating. In our previous two episodes, we talked about the first of the two uh, founders of the Ottoman Empire, and now we're on to the third of the great founding sultans, and that is Murad I. Right, everybody at this point is known as the first. Okay, now it's interesting to remember that Murad was not intended to become sultan. His brother Suleiman, who had led the army in the conquest in Europe, was the designated successor, but he died there. And while the Ottomans weren't at this point, at least, killing off all the con other contenders and rivals for the throne, as they would become famous for later on, uh, it's still clear that Suleiman got most of the attention and most of the investment for becoming a leader. Murad, it seems, was even illiterate and used to sign his name with a fingerprint, so he definitely was not being groomed in the pattern of his predecessors to be a great leader. Uh, nonetheless, he would become very important. Okay, Murad's father, of course, was the great Sultan Orkhan, the second of the sultans we talked about. His mother was Greek, uh, part of one of the many political marriages that had been arranged. So again, when we think of this as these uh, Muslim Turks coming from Central Asia and invading Europe, I mean, this is not really the case. We, we have a lot of intermarriage, and of course, he's the product of a uh, Turkish father and Greek mother. And of course, by this time, the once great Byzantine Empire was just a vassal state of the Ottomans anyway. Okay, so um, 
you know that that isn't even um, that much of a of an oddity because they're now subservient to the Ottomans. So really, even talking about a Byzantine Empire at this time is misleading because what we're really talking about is the city of Constantinople for the most part. There's not much else left. So this is not the idea of the this great clash of religions as is often made to sound. To some people, that's what it was, but um, really it's a uh, more of a, a political thing between all the political leaders of the time, Christian and Muslim. Anyway, uh, despite not being intended for the office, Sultan Murad would continue the expansion of Ottoman territory into Europe, uh, and he f fought in what is now Bulgaria, Romania, and Hungary, and the Balkans. And so it's interesting to note that while the Ottomans came from Asia... Central Asia, and the Ottoman Empire would be associated primarily with the Middle East. Most of its territory would be in the Middle East. At this time, they held only a small corner of Anatolia, the Asian part of Turkey, which really wasn't much bigger when the founder, Osman, started. But most of their expansion had been in the Balkans, in Europe, um, and this would always be an area they were greatly interested in and wanting to expand to, even though you know most of their territory would end up being in the other direction. Okay, well, we talked last time about how the divisions among the Christians facilitated this Ottoman takeover, and this is going to continue during Murad's reign. So if you remember, the Orthodox Christian Byzantine emperor, you know, basically the once the guy in charge of the, the great Eastern Church, he had gone begging to the Catholic Pope for help. And while the Pope did send crusaders to fight the Turks, um, as they often did, once they got there, they mostly turned and fought against the Greek Orthodox. Okay, so it didn't work out that well. I mean, the Crusades in the Middle East were over by this time. That period was over. Uh, Crusades as a whole were not over because the Catholic Church was launching them all over Europe against people that we would classify today as Christians, but they didn't think of as being correct Christians. So all this is going on. There's all this division. There's not really effective opposition. And the Ottomans, small that they are, are you know they're very united, as we've seen. And Murad, who, like his father and grandfather, is a very sharp strategist and diplomat, um, he exploited this to his advantage. And so as we often see this as Christian versus Muslim, you know, for the most part, the, the Christians in the Balkans hated the Catholic Church. Uh, and they were being persecuted by the Catholic Church, and crusaders from the Catholic Church were coming over trying to kill them. Uh, and they didn't have much of an opinion of the Muslims. So here again, they allied with the Muslims against other Christians. And so this helped them a lot. Uh, practically speaking, you know, the Ottomans were stretched really thin by all the fighting they were doing. Uh, so they didn't have a lot of extra troops of their own uh, just sitting around who they could send to populate conquered European territory. And they didn't have a lot of soldiers who could stay on occupation duty. Um, so for their uh, point, rather than trying to force the Christians to convert, 
in the conquered territories, which would lead to rebellion, which you'd need more troops to suppress, as in other places, as we've seen Muslim empires do, they realize, hey, it was easier to win the people over and get them on your side. Um, you know, the Ottomans had general religious tolerance. I mean, again, we have to put this in um, in perspective for the time. They had general religious tolerance, um, which is going to go down some, we'll talk about, but you definitely didn't find that in Catholic Europe. I mean, if you were Orthodox in, in a Catholic territory, I mean, you were a heretic. Uh, I mean, this is the time where people are being tortured and, and forced to switch from one denomination to another. So uh, here we have Orthodox Christians of the Baltics, uh, excuse me, of the Balkans, uh, wrong end. Of course, the, the Christians in the Baltics were also being, uh, there were crusades dedicated against them as well. But it's the ones in the Balkans who realize, hey, we're, we're better off uh, under the Ottomans here. And this gets so bad that the Byzantine emperor is actually captured by the Venetians and held for ransom. And of course, the Venice is one of the big Christian powers of the day, one of the sea powers. So when he's finally set free, hey, he realizes he's better off working for the Ottomans. They will protect him, and so he does. He becomes an Ottoman vassal. Uh, his attempts at you know getting support from the Catholic Church didn't do him any good. So hey, I'll, I'll work for for these folks. Okay, so now as we said, there's some tolerance going on, but we have to be careful about this. Um, of course, it's not tolerance by 21st century standards. The, the religious tolerance was only for those who fought on the Ottoman side. So if you were a Christian and you sided with the Ottomans against your other Christian enemies, then that was great. Uh, if you were captured, if you fought against us, that's a different story. Uh, so anyone who was captured in battle could be kept as a slave. Women who were captured were almost always kept as concubines. Uh, and this is particularly because you know, we, we're, we're sending warriors into Europe, um, so they didn't take their families with them. They were, we weren't sending a lot of women there, so the women who were captured ended up um, being, being concubines for the uh, Turkish warriors. And this, again, leads to a lot more inter, interbreeding between the Turks and the Europeans and, you know, a lot, lot more mixing. Now, as for the men, a couple of things could happen to them. Now, they would stay as slaves unless they converted to Islam because we couldn't enslave uh, Muslims. They could buy their freedom, which was actually useful because often the the Ottomans needed money more than they needed the manpower, so that was a good thing. Um, and so all of these things made it quite unproductive to fight against the Ottomans. I mean, they were winning. Um, you, you weren't getting much support on the other side. I mean, you were getting persecuted on the Christian side, um, whereas if you fought on the Ottoman side, then, I mean, you got, you got treated well. Okay. Now, this um, situation of uh, enslaving uh, the men who are captured is going to lead to one of the most important institutions in the Ottoman Empire, and the one they are probably best known for. Uh, and this is their famous Janissary Corps of warriors, 
who for a while would be the most feared fighters in Europe, the terror of Europe. Now, later on, they would become a, a joke, uh, much like the Mamluks, and they would get steamrolled by Western armies. But that was centuries off. Uh, at this time, th this is really going to become a major innovation. And it's really under Murad's reign that the Janissary Corps, this famous, you know, one of the most famous of Ottoman institutions, you know, the, the harem and the seraglio is, is another one. There's several. Um, it, it really develops during Murad's time. Now, there, there's some debate on this, uh, but most scholars think that's the case. Uh, really, a lot of it is because, as we said, Osman I is the founder, and there's this tendency to really glorify him and give him credit for everything. So give him credit for the Janissary Corps, which most likely did not exist at his time. So anyway, who, who were these famous folks? Uh, so the term comes from the Ottoman Yeni Shari, which of course I'm not pronouncing correctly because I don't speak Turkish, but it doesn't matter. It's close enough to become Romanized as Janissary, right? Um, and the the, the switching of Y and J sounds going into English, right? We know this, this is why a name like uh, Juan or Javier, right? This, you know, it's written with a J in English and so forth. Uh, anyway, so um, this becomes Romanized as what we call Janissaries in English. The term means new soldiers, which is what they were. Uh, so initially, this was uh, meant to address the fact that the Turks were really stretched thin and they didn't have enough troops of their own. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, they didn't have enough troops to garrison the newly conquered territories, plus, you know, stay at home and be farmers and such in their in their home territories and and so on. So we needed we needed to recruit some new troops from somewhere. And this starts out with Orhan, who is Murad's father, uh, having his own special bodyguard of troops. Now, we've seen this system before. It, it doesn't start uh, with the Janissaries, and it's really not even unique um, to, to Islam. But this idea of slave soldiers, of course, the most famous ones and ones we've talked about a lot are the, the Mamluks. Um, so it's, it's not a new concept at all. Um, but it's, it's seen as being very useful. Um, even the Romans right, have something like this. So the problem was, of course, you, you, you really can't trust mercenaries. They always rebel and take over. Uh, you, you can't really trust allies. I mean, look what's happening on the Christian side. Everyone they bring in to help them ends up fighting against them. Um, and if you use people from your own country... Of course, you, you have a limited number of them. The, what started out as this Ottoman tribe is now expanded to much, much greater territory than they originally held. But even if you use troops from your own country, they, of course, have relatives and connections who are going to use their influence, and then you end up with generals who have a lot of power. Um, and so what every ruler really wants was a core of super loyal troops who had allegiance to no one other than the leader. 
and and you see this i mean constantly throughout history of these soldiers who pledge themselves to the emperor to no one else but the emperor i mean even um even up into modern times now a, a lot of times this ends up being nonsense and they turn on him in a heartbeat um but this is what everyone wants to have now of course in the future uh, these will be robots or cyborgs or something like that that you can program. And, of course, in Star Wars, we know how this works. But even there, right, There's a that's a cautionary tale because they have these clones. And, wow, man, we got these super loyal clones here, the stormtroopers, uh, other than the fact they can't hit anything, right? They shoot, they shoot around you. But, um, but they are raised specially for this purpose. But then someone sneaks in Order 66 into their software, right? So even that doesn't work. So the Mamluk system was the medieval attempt to solve this. Um, not stormtroopers, of course, because they hadn't seen uh, Star Wars. Uh, but the Mamluk system was the attempt to solve this. And it wasn't... It, it sounds really strange to us, but th this is not so um, far out of the, the culture at the time, as, as we've talked about before, and I don't want to get in any trouble um, talking about slavery here, but slavery was such a, a, a common institution in the Muslim world. I mean, we, we've talked about people who had tremendous power, people who would rise to the highest levels of politics and who were technically slaves. I mean, it's nothing like that happened in slavery in the United States, of course, right? Um, we, we know that, but it was a little bit different. So the idea that you, you know, some of your, your best warriors would actually have a slave status was not that unusual. But that was the system. What was really un unusual is the way they wanted to make sure that um, all of these soldiers would be first generation. Okay, so what they would do uh, is they would buy young boys who look like promising specimens. I mean, someone who looks like they're going to grow up to be a good warrior. You take them to special military camps at a, at a young age. In the case of the Janissaries, it's 12 to 13 is the, is the average age. Um, and, you know, we're talking about 13-year-old boys they're taking, so the parents are probably very eager to get, yeah, take my kid, please. Um, okay, no, I don't want to get in trouble saying that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, at, at this age, you're, you're able to tell who's going to be a good warrior. And, of course, you're trained, intensely trained to be great soldiers and, of course, indoctrinated to be extremely loyal and now you have this core of super loyal warriors and they've i mean they've cut all ties with their families and everything their family literally is the military unit the battalion that they're in now this falls apart pretty quickly in the mamluk case um, we know that and it, and it falls apart because it, it doesn't continue like that um, you know if you were able to continue that system other than, of course, the humanitarian, you know, and human rights aspects of it, which are, you know, would be quite abominable in our time. But in terms of having loyal soldiers, that would work. The The problem is that, you know, even these slave soldiers realize they have a lot of power. Hey, you know, you give anyone the power to defend your kingdom and they're going to realize they can exploit that. And so they end up, they create a Mamluk dynasty that rules Egypt for centuries. Okay, so 
Um, the Janissaries are not a, a copy of the Mamluk system, although there's there's a lot of parallels to them. But it's more accurate to say that this kind of relationship was pretty normal uh, for the time. Okay, so it, it was not something like they looked at the Mamluks and said, "Hey, let's let's do that." Um, so, how does this evolve on the Ottoman side? Well, specifically in their case, they had these newly conquered European territories where people were Christians. And so they're already settling these folks. You're already taking in a lot of slaves to begin with. So they selected the most promising young males from local families, um, which meant they were all Christian by birth, and converted them to Islam and trained them as elite soldiers. Now, of course, conversion is supposed to be voluntary in Christianity and Islam. Okay, I mean, this is... This is reality, all right? I mean, the, yeah, they didn't take kids and, and, and convert them. And, I mean, they were, they were born into a religion. They didn't choose that one either. But so that's, that's what's happening. And then you train them as elite soldiers, and also they give them training in, in Islam and, um, you know, everything else, the laws of the state and so forth. They become good Ottomans. Uh, now, this is very useful for a, a number of reasons, besides just being loyal, number one means they came from the local populace, meaning they know the area and they know the people, right? Um, and, and so therefore you get people who know the terrain, you know, and they know, they know how people think and they know, okay, they probably, you, you know, know where a lot of key locations are and so forth. Uh, so that's very good. Um, and of course, you know, if you're taking people, you know, taking males from your enemy and training them on your side, that's one less soldier who's going to be on the other side. Now, again, just to be clear, they don't have any choice in this. I mean, if you really don't want to go become a janissary, that's tough luck. But a lot of them do, and actually a lot of families are legitimately bribing to get their kids into this system because, yeah, I mean, they're going to go have a a, a good life, a good standard of living, unless they get killed. Um, now, today we would look at this and we would say they were kidnapped and, and forced to be soldiers. And I mean, similar to, you know, these horrible warlords we have in the Congo, you know, with child soldiers. Um, now, that's not wrong. It's just a different era. Uh, and that's certainly not how the Ottomans looked at it. So how did they justify this from a, a legal perspective, because they, I mean, they were building very uh, elaborate institutions and legal codes. Well, you may remember from many episodes back, and we've talked about this several times, Islam has a distinctive way of dealing with non-Muslims in their midst. Of course, people can always convert. That's fine. Uh, they're not forced to convert. I mean, other than these, these kids who are being put into the um, Janissary system. But of course, uh, non-Muslims within Islam at the time, if they didn't convert, they would have to pay a tax, which is known as the jizya. Um, now, we, we've talked about this many times, and when, when this is described today, um, 
it's it's described as it being this horrible burdensome tax on people so you either you either convert die or pay this extortionary ransom tax i mean that's not really the way it is in fact as as we've shown throughout most of muslim history the jizya tax was set to be whatever the tax rate was in the territory where they went into so Whatever you were paying to the Byzantines, that ended up usually being the, the jizya tax. Now, just to revisit this, and this is going to be very important for the logic of how we end up with Janissaries, where does this come from uh, originally? I mean, this was meant to be something that was equitable. It was not meant to be a punishment. So, of course, in early Islam, in, in the days of the Prophet, there was continuous warfare. We've discussed this. in uh, we had a tribal society. You didn't have a standing army. I mean, soldier was not a profession. So basically all Muslim men were soldiers. Like in a tribe, when there's an attack, everybody goes out and defends. And this is one reason why you have polygamy, uh, by the way, because you, you had a lot more men being killed off. There was a gender imbalance. Okay. Now, non-Muslims in the captured territory were not required to fight. And in fact, this started out as a treaty. If you remember way back, the first constitution we have, uh, the Constitution of Medina, which is made uh, between the Muslims and the non-Muslims, who were basically Jewish uh, people of the city of Medina, when they came to make a community together. And it was the Jews who invited Muhammad in to establish this community. And this was what they worked out, the idea that, you know, there's basically two professions, two occupations for men. There's fighting and agriculture, and it's a problem if half the population is, is off fighting and the other half is exempted from military service. So the idea was you would pay a tax. This jizya tax was meant to be the monetary equivalent of not serving in the military, not serving in the wars. And, I mean, it wasn't just paying your way out of it. it the, the idea was that, okay, non-Muslims, Jews, should not be fighting uh, in the Muslim army, uh, but we still have to feed the population, so that was going to be their contribution. And again, this was something they agreed to. Well, this becomes, of course, standardized throughout the entire empire, which becomes huge. We fast forward a few centuries, and this becomes a formal economic system. Uh, and as we mentioned, for most of Muslim history, they didn't really need more fighters. Uh, of course, when you listen to something like this, or you read a book, it sounds like there's constant warfare. But of course, most of the years in between, there's not. They needed economic production uh, more than they needed fighters. And so this was actually a, a very useful thing. Uh, they would keep the jizya at a reasonable rate so people would see it as a good deal. If it was the way some critics make it sound, like it is this you know, absolutely extortionary thing where we're going to come take 80% of your income, well, then everyone would just convert and, and go serve in the army. Well, you didn't want that. Uh, so they kept it at a, at a reasonable rate, and it, I mean, typically the rate was like two to five percent of what you what you earned, what you took in. Uh, by today's standards, it's it's pretty low. Okay, so anyway, 
that's just a whole background here, but I wanted to mention the military part because this is what um, the Ottoman uh, jurists are really going to seize upon, and this is how they're going to justify the Janissary Corps. Okay, so conquered Christians in the new territories could pay the Jizya tax and just keep doing their thing. Okay, uh, but the Sultan decides at this point, you know, we really need fighters. We're in a situ we're in one of these situations where we do need a lot of warriors. And so his decision is that males of military age should not be exempted uh, from military service. Uh, so this is really backward logic, right? It sounds like it's going against the spirit of the original jizya, which says, um, you know, we don't want you in our army, and since you're not going to be in the army, you're going to pay this tax instead. Okay, so people pay the tax and say, okay, yeah, this is pretty good. I don't mind paying this tax. And then they say, wait a minute, we really need soldiers, so we're not going to give you that option. Okay, if you're a male of military age, you don't have the option of paying the tax and getting out. Now, again, they don't want all of them, right? You, you, don't, you don't want the entire population in your army. Nobody's got an army that big. But they want to say you don't have this uh, option so we can go in and pick the best ones, pick the people we want to draft into our army um, and say, you, okay, you don't have the option of paying the jizya and getting out of this. Okay. So um, it, it, was, it was legally justified. The jurists were able to come out and justify it that way. But, you know, it is really going against the spirit of the original uh, jizya. Now, what, they, what they're doing is saying, well, that original agreement was that non-Muslims should not serve in the Muslim army. Well, we're going to take these kids and they're going to convert to Islam, and so now that doesn't apply. Uh, so we are now technically, technically following the law, the letter of the law. Okay, that's just a long, lengthy description of how we get this system to be legal. Okay, so now that we know sort of the justification for this thing, how did it actually work? So these... Um, soldiers were drafted into this, right? Kids were taken into this in the Dershima, which became an annual event. Eventually, it would become once every five years. Um, Ottoman units would go around the country and pick out the new recruits. And initially, this system, and at the time of Murad, we're only talking about soldiers. But later on, this would get expanded to administrators and stuff. So they'd not only be... Um, picking like the strongest and most fit kids to become soldiers, you'd be looking for the smartest kids too to become super cl uh, clerks and judges and such. Um, and so after a while, it does become a thing where some people are trying to get their kids into the Janissary Corps, but it's still, it's still an involuntary thing. Now, I know that sounds horrible, but we should remember that uh, pretty much every country... Well, most countries in the world had the draft, at least in wartime. In the United States, we even had a peacetime draft until the 1970s. 
Um, and in the Middle Ages, and even right up until the 20th century, most armies and navies especially were notorious uh, for getting recruits by just grabbing people off the streets. This is one of the reasons for the 1812 war with England, is the British Navy was grabbing Americans and making sailors out of them, and they definitely did not get treated well. So, yes, the bottom line is today the Janissary Corps would be a bad thing. In the 1400s, they were certainly not no worse and a lot better than a lot of the other systems that were going on at the time. this core of soldiers who are exclusively loyal to the sultan at this time. And the way this evolved, it started out, as I said, as a small bodyguard, but there was also a, a rule that the sultan was authorized to one-fifth of everything that was captured in battle. And remember, it, at this time in the Middle Ages, this is one of the main inducements of war. Uh, you know, most soldiers aren't actually paid anything, but it's the idea that you get to keep a lot of loot from the, the areas that you defeat. Well, that included people too, slaves. So the sultan not only got one-fifth of the gold and all the loot, he was entitled to one-fifth of the slaves who were captured. So that was the justification for, okay, I'm going to take these slaves that belong to me and train them as bodyguards. And they become famous for the loyalty and the standardized training that they have, and they become really the best troops in the Ottoman army. Now, they're never, they're never the majority. The majority of the troops are, are basically, um, you know, like peasant soldiers, um, just who were, were sent, you know, as, as footmen into battle. Uh, but this is like your, your core of the best troops. And so it's very hard to objectively talk about how good or bad the Janissaries were, because like a lot of things in the Ottoman Empire, they later become famous for being corrupt and useless. And they, they certainly are. Um, you know, by the time they are eliminated in the 19th century, they are nothing but a hindrance to modernization. Um, just like the, the Mamluks. I mean, they're a complete liability that you, you have to get rid of if you want to build a modern army. In the 1300s, they're still very effective soldiers. So, you know, their, their reputation is sort of mixed, depending on when you're looking at them. Originally, they were expert archers. That was their thing. And, but quickly, by the mid-1400s, they're going to be one of the first units to make extensive use of firearms. Now, that's a little bit ahead of where we are today, of Murad's time. But it, it shows, I mean, they're, they're kind of on the cutting edge. Unlike other soldiers, they were paid regular salaries. They were given bonuses for capturing things. They had permanent barracks, 
right? And uh, they had extensive support units. So it was not just these archers, but they were supported by artillery units, which was a very big deal at the time. Artillery was a new thing. Um, and this is, you know, very significant when we consider that the Ottomans originally started out as nomadic tribal warriors. Okay, so they're very... Um, mobile and they don't have much of a logistical system that's the idea they live off the land and i mean very few armies did have a logistical system at this time but by the time of murad once the janissaries are in place they have designated support corps they have transportation units engineer units supply units they have their own cooking and baking units uh, that followed with them and this is a a big big deal so this is really a very organized and sustained army um, for the time. And in fact, just as an interesting note, the, the cooking units were so distinct that this became a, um, one of the insignia of the Janissaries is a, is a cooking pot because this is like something other people didn't have, right? Uh, and the traditional way that they would rebel as they would later on, and of course they become corrupt and powerful, uh, when they wanted to rebel against the sultan, what they would do is go out and dump over their cooking pots, dump out the food on the ground, which means they were refusing the sultan's food. Uh, now, this, of course, they did for the last time in the courtyard of the palace in 1826, and they had a rude encounter with the artillery, which was not there to support them when they did this. Uh, this is far ahead, but that's it's probably the most famous thing that ever happens involving um, Janissaries. Anyway, this is, this is just to say that this is such a big deal that they have this kind of logistical support that it becomes a trademark. Okay, uh, the units were organized into ortas, which essentially are battalions. But the Orta would become like the family of the soldiers because they weren't allowed to marry. They weren't allowed to have children. Now, they may have actually made children during their time, but they would not be legally acknowledged and they couldn't, couldn't have the kids with them, couldn't support them. This was the idea is that Janissaries were not a hereditary thing. Every Janissary was newly recruited and indoctrinated. Um, this, this is how we want to do it. We don't want them to become a force unto their own. Now, of course they do. The same thing with the Mamluks is it just becomes really hard to stop them. And this is one of the signs that we're losing control over them is that they do start having kids and their kids start being Janissaries. And then you got, um, you know, you got basically a, a little dynasty of them. But the idea was no. I mean, every single one of them was specially chosen and indoctrinated to be fanatically loyal to the sultan. Now, all of this talk, we talk about how organized they were at this time. It, it is a bit ironic because by the end, by, by the time they're finally eliminated, um, they're known for being exactly the opposite. They're, they're more like gangs. Uh, they're known for being extremely disorganized, extremely messy, um, and they, they get just crushed when they come up against real disciplined Western-style armies. So a lot of this is relative. What constitutes a highly regulated and disciplined army in 1300 is nothing like 
what constitutes one in the time of Napoleon or today, for example. So you have to keep it all in perspective. Okay, well, even if Murad was illiterate and never meant to be sultan, he initiated some of the biggest innovations in Ottoman government. The Janissary Corps is one of these, of course, but he also creates the office of sultan. Now, this is a little bit confusing because uh, we've said several times that this was the first person to be actually called sultan. Uh, it's because they use a number of titles. All of these guys use a number of titles, but he really establishes this as a permanent office. Um, now, his titles, he's known as uh, Bey, he's known as Emir, he's known as Sultan, he's known as Sultan of Sultans, King of Kings, and so on. In the Western sources, he's called a Tsar. Um, so you can see how, how this can become a bit uh, confusing. Okay, so along with the office of the Sultan is the Diwan, or the Divan, depending on which... Uh, which uh, pronunciation you're using of this Arabic or Turkish. Uh, this term may sound familiar to you as a piece of furniture. We think of a, a divan as a piece of furniture, which actually comes from the same idea. A diwan refers to a place where people get together to sit and talk, like a salon. Uh, in Arabic, another word for this is a mejlis, which literally means a place where you sit. That also becomes a term for a council or a committee. Okay, so these all go together. It refers to the group of people who sit with the sultan, ostensibly advising him. But of course, the sultan, like a khalif, theoretically has total power, right? He doesn't share power. So this is why we call it just a sitting, the group who sits with him. Because they don't have any... Right. ostensibly they don't have any authority it's just the people he congregates with and he may or may not listen to them okay then the, this idea of the diwan or the mejlis becomes uh like a council an advisory council uh, in, in in a sense it's also like a cabinet which is the way uh, murad does it because even though he technically has all the power um, he invites specific people to be part of his diwan, and they have specific jobs. They have they are the forerunners of cabinet secretaries, right? Like ministers. Now, nowhere near as formalized as what we will get the bureaucracy later on, but um, it, it is that um, a. a transition or a hybrid form of that. This is somewhere in between a traditional tribal leadership and a big government bureaucracy. Because um, remember, a tribe is like a big family and the elders would get together and pick the most capable as their leader, but he's still the first among equals. So we have all the cousins and uncles are sitting together and discussing things. Okay, And then this evolves into where Khalifs are sitting around and they have their own uh, diwan, which has, of course, scholars in it, artists, philosophers, entertainers, and so forth. And this is moving to a more formalized thing where we end up with a minister of finance, defense, and so forth. 
Okay, so we are somewhere somewhere in between there. This is starting to become um, just a, a, um, a more formal structure. Okay, and so he does appoint some important um, office holders. So he has the Kazaskar, who was the military judge. He has divided the um, his kingdom into fiefdoms or timurates who govern the fiefdoms, okay? So we are getting something along the line of a more permanent, settled um, government structure, which is going to become very elaborate as the Ottoman Empire gets uh, bigger and bigger. And, of course, it helps that they are building upon the remains of the Byzantine Empire, which is so famous for bureaucracy that the word Byzantine means really bureaucratic. Okay, so um, talking about Murad, personally, he would have three wives, uh, one of whom was a Bulgarian princess, uh, but he was very closely tied by family connections to the Byzantines uh, at this point. Okay, so they, you know, they're really integrating themselves. And while we tend to associate the Ottomans with the Middle East, uh, and the empire was mostly in the Middle East at its height, uh, by this time Europe is really the center, and they have more territory in Europe than they do in Asia, and they are moving forward. The direction uh, in which Murad is advancing is into Europe. Okay. So the idea that they are seen as a threat by Europe is not completely unjustified. That's the direction they're going. very successful. He would bring most of the Balkans under Ottoman control, and having done that, he would move the, ca the capital one more time. Uh, not quite to Constantinople, but we're getting closer. He's going to move the capital onto European territory, which is significant, right? That shows where your direction is, where your vision is headed. All right. Well, these are great accomplishments, but as always, he gets a lot of help from the Europeans who are supposed to be opposing him. Um, they help make it easy for him. Uh, and really the strongest opposition to the Ottomans at this time, in the late 1300s, are the Serbs. And as I alluded to at the beginning of this uh, broadcast, this is not going to be lost on history. Uh, when we talk about centuries-old uh, feuds and, and bitterness and vendettas, it goes back to this time. So um, with really the, you know, the Byzantines being out of it as a, as a legitimate power, an effective power, um, the Catholic forces doing more harm than good, in 1371, the Serbian king launches an offensive to drive the Ottomans out of Europe. Uh, but it only succeeds in driving the Serbs out. They lose and get pushed back to the west. 
And the city of Adrianople, which is today is on the Greek-Turkish border, to give you an idea of how far into Europe we're pushing, this becomes the new Ottoman capital. Uh, it is re renamed kind of as Aderna, um, which is maybe not so much a new name. It's the, the Turkish pronunciation of Adrianople, both of which are named after Hadrian, the Roman Empire, the guy with the wall in Britain. So, I mean, actually, Ederna sounds closer to Hadrian. Uh, it will be the capital for 84 years, so not a short time, until Constantinople is, of course, captured, and that becomes renamed Istanbul. But Istanbul is the Turkish version of Constantinople anyway. Um, so you can see a lot of these, when we say new names, are not really new names. They're like different... Um, different languages dealing with new names um, like Cairo and El Qahira. It's the same. It's the same word. It's just picked up by different languages. Okay. Anyway, um, the most famous battle involving Murad, and this is one I alluded to, is the Battle of Kosovo. And this name is probably familiar to most of us today because of the recent battle of Kosovo in the 1990s. So we have some idea where the place is located. And, you know, really, at least in the eyes of the parties who fought in that battle in the 1990s, what was happening then was a continuation of this. At least that's the way some people look at it. Now, of course, uh, President Bill Clinton who was president at the time, and he's the one who uh, initiated the U.S. involvement in uh, the fighting in Kosovo. Uh, as he famously said at the beginning of this, um, yes, these people have been fighting for centuries, but as he said, he went back and he looked at it, and he said for most of that time, they were not fighting. Okay, so that's the kind of thing. But it definitely, it makes a big imprint in the psychology of people even to this day. Uh, anyway, this was one of the largest battles of the Middle Ages. Uh, it was actually much larger than the Battle of Agincourt, which would, happened uh, a little bit later, which is a much more famous battle. It was probably about 20,000 Serbs versus 30,000 Ottomans, which is, th those are big numbers for the, that day. Um, in reality, both sides were coalitions of a, a lot of different groups. Okay, so on the Ottoman side, there were probably about 2,000 Janissaries. So, we're, as I said, they're like the core of the Ottoman Empire, but uh, the Ottoman army, but they're only a small proportion. They're not even 10% of the total fighting force. So a lot of these are auxiliaries. They're allied troops who join together. Now, again, like everything else, it's very hard to get the real numbers because what is written in the chronicles of the day are ridiculous numbers. Uh, one side has, one of the Ottoman chronicles says there's half a million Serb troops, which they're trying to justify the very big casualties they took. I mean, this is, this is quite impossible. It's like the numbers in the Bible talking about battles they had with 600,000 troops. There's just no way that that was possible. Uh, okay, so um, as always, in, in good 
in good uh, Christian form of the time, the Serb armies were held were led by two uh, Serbian kings because the Serbian Empire had disintegrated into a number of smaller states, and we have two kings, right? We got to have divided leadership, right? This is this is just part of the the script. Okay, um, so the two leaders are Prince Lazar and Vuk Brankovic, but they they're only leading the largest Serb contingents. They had Bulgarians, Romanians, Hungarians, even some crusaders from the nice Hospitaller from the Greek island of Rhodes who are still around. Uh, they've got quite a, uh, quite a mixed force which is going to work against them. On the Ottoman side, they have uh, a number of other Turkish allies. They've got Christians on their side, including the famous Catalans, the ones who were brought in to fight them earlier and turned against the Byzantines, they're fighting for the Ottomans as well. Okay, uh, but they still, the, the Ottoman side has more centralized leadership, right? It's got one sultan um, who's, who's got total control. Uh, so the Serbs are trying to stop the advance of the Ottomans into what's essentially a vacuum created by the disintegration of the Serbian Empire. And they meet at a key road junction of Kosovo, which, of course, you want, this is a key point to stop them uh, moving further into Serbia. And, and we have a big battle there, and the rulers on both sides were very well forward. I mean, they were on horseback, uh, both the Serbian uh, kings, uh, Sultan Murad. I mean, they are up in the front lines with their troops. And uh, cavalry is going to play an important role on both sides. And it said, actually, initially the Serbian cavalry uh, initially breaks through the Ottoman lines. But the problem is the heavy armor they have. Uh, the Serbians have, you know, the typical heavy um, European armor. And this becomes a liability against the lighter, much more mobile Turks. Uh, and, and so eventually this is going to turn the, the battle against them. Now, Kosovo was less of a victory for anybody than it was a mass slaughter. I mean, both armies are pretty much wiped out uh, in this battle. The problem is that the Serbs are, are unable to replace their losses. Um, and so it's the Ottomans who end up benefiting from this. So even though there, there's not really a winner in the battle, um, it's, it's the Serb empire that's basically destroyed and the Ottomans who move in and, and take over. Now, at some point in this, seeing that there was no hope of victory, the Serbian, uh, one of the Serbian leaders, Vuk Brankovic, uh, withdraws his forces. Now, his supporters say he was making a tactical retreat trying to salvage what was left of the army. The supporters of Prince Lazar, who was killed, when Luke, uh, when Vuk uh, retreats, say that Vuk betrayed him and left him to die, which he does with most of his army. Okay, so um, the most significant thing that happens, however, is after the battle. Uh, a Serbian knight pretends to defect to the Ottoman side, and he's brought to, to meet the Sultan, and he pulls out a hidden dagger and kills him. 
and of course, then then the the Serbian is is then killed. But this ends the reign of Murad the first. Now he he led for a long time, and he was at the height of his power. But he might have gone on uh, longer than that. And this is in 1389. Okay. Despite that setback, though, the Ottomans still held the dominant position. They would keep the territory. Uh, and the Serbian states would become Ottoman vassals, and uh, eventually, the, I mean, very shortly thereafter, uh, the entire Serbian state collapses. Now, notice I said this was in 1389. 89 is significant because um, that's when trouble starts to happen in 1989, but this battle becomes an important landmark um, for both sides, a lot of bad blood is created, and it becomes an important landmark in Serbian nationalism and is a key part of the Muslim-Christian conflict that continues throughout the decade. There will actually be several battles of Kosovo throughout the centuries. Uh, but the date of the battle, June 15th, is a Serbian national holiday. Uh, and so in 1876, Serbia declared war on the Ottomans on that day, invoking the history. Um, but uh, because Kosovo became an Ottoman state, it would become over 90% Muslim. And to this day, Kosovo is over 90% uh, Muslim. And so this is when uh, Slobodan Milosevic, who, of course, is a very infamous, infamous name, uh, in 1989, which would be the 600th anniversary of the battle, uh, and they had a, had a very, very big commemoration, built a huge monument, and had, you know, hundreds of people came out and uh, gave speeches. He was president of Serbia at the time, and he gave a very famous speech, which is pretty much a declaration of war. Uh, he said that Kosovo belonged to Serbia, and they would retake it with, quote, armed battles. And significantly, Milosevic was known as Little Lazar, right, after King Lazar, who died there in the battle. Okay, and they wrote poems glorifying him and comparing him to Lazar from 1389. Uh, and actually, in, during his, his war crimes trials, this speech was used as justification. Um, so... Um, the actual fighting began, though, in the, in the mid-1990s and involved a huge NATO bombing campaign. But it just shows you these, these are still repercussions from what we're talking about today. I mean, they, they are and they, they aren't. Right? I mean, these things are invoked to justify what people want to do. Okay, But it shows this history is still important to a lot of folks. Anyway, with that, at his sudden death at the age of 62. After 27 years of rule, uh, Murad I left an Ottoman state that was larger than ever with a new capital in Europe, covering more territory in Europe than in Asia, and he strengthened several central government and a permanent army. So these were pretty good accomplishments for a guy who was never supposed to be sultan uh, and would pave the way uh, for the monumentous uh, conquests of Constantinople very shortly thereafter. So that is the third in our episodes on the founders of the Ottoman Empire. We thank you for your kind attention, as always, and we hope to see you again in the future. 
Thank you very much. Shukran Jazeelan wa ma salama. Thank you.